Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Parkinson's is the fastest growing neurological disease in the world. In the last 25 years, the number of people afflicted with it has jumped from around 3 million to 6 million and is likely to double again by the year 2040. Four of the country's most prominent experts on Parkinson's, Drs. Ray Dorsey, Todd Scherer, Michael S. Okun, and Bastian R. Blom, have written a new book called Ending Parkinson's Disease, A Prescription for Action. It's published by Hachette Book Group's Public Affairs imprint, and net proceeds of the sale of the book will go uh, to help end Parkinson's. Joining us now are two of its authors, Dr. Ray Dorsey, the David M. Levy Professor of Neurology at the University of Rochester, where he directs the Center for Health and Technology, and Dr. Michael S. Okun, the Adelaide Lackner Professor, Chair of Neurology and Executive Director of the Fixel Institute for Neurological Diseases at the University of Florida. Welcome to our show. Thank you very much for having us, Leonard. Yes, thanks, Leonard. Great to be here. Now, I'm going to uh, I'll try to address questions to each of you individually, but please uh, just jump in when uh, you have something to add, okay? Yeah. Uh, doc, Dr. Dorsey, the word pandemic is uh, used to describe the spread of Parkinson's. Is it a pandemic similar in any way to what we're experiencing with, uh, with COVID-19? Uh, it shares a lot of similarities. Uh, it's not infectious like COVID-19, uh, but it uh, is the world's fastest growing brain disease. It's found in virtually every part of the world. It affects uh, all people, regardless of their background. Uh, and it's a devastating disease for people uh, with it. But it's not viral or bacterial. Not that we uh, know of. There, In the past, there have been a few cases that have been associated with uh, viruses, including the influenza pandemic uh, and a sleeping sickness that followed shortly thereafter. If any of you watched uh, the TV, the movie Awakenings uh, that mm. starred Robin Williams and Robert De Niro, that was talking about people who developed a Parkinsonian condition as a response as a result of an uh, infectious virus, and they had an awakening when they were given the medication levodopa. But the vast majority of people with Parkinson's disease do not have it from infectious causes, but likely from environmental ones. Do we have any idea why the number of Parkinson's cases has doubled over the past 25 years? Isn't it growing faster than Alzheimer's? It, it is growing faster than Alzheimer's. And when Dr. James Parkinson described the condition in London in 1817, he was describing that was something that was very likely rare. He even said if this disease hasn't been classified in the medical literature. And since that time, numerous products and byproducts of the Industrial Revolution, including the air pollution, think about the London fog, certain pesticides and industrial chemicals, including one called trichloroethylene, uh, have all been linked to the disease. And so that over the past 200 years, we've gone from something that was extraordinarily rare to one that's extraordinarily common. Dr. Okun, I, I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Um, who's most at risk? Yeah, so um, it turns out that, you know, there are risk factors that you can um, you do something about, and there are risk factors that you can't. And the largest risk factor for Parkinson, your listeners might be interested to know, is just being a man. So being male is the largest risk factor. And second is aging. And, you know, some people would say the greatest advance over the last hundred years is the doubling of the lifespan. So we've now are able to help people to live 
so much longer than they were in the past. So in the 1840s, you know, you may have lived to 40 years old or less, and now you can live to be more than 75. And when we think about aging, we think about these degenerative disorders like Parkinson. But as we see this rapid rise and we think, oh, it's just a disease of aging, we have great researchers like Ray Dorsey, who's on the line with me today, who are beginning to show that it must be more than aging that's driving this increased risk. And that's why we've become very, very uh, impressed by the potential contributions of industrialization, chemicals, pesticides, other things in the environment. 10% uh, of the people who are at risk are in their 40s or younger. So uh, obviously, um, it can it can hit you even when you are young. Um, although treating brain disease and, and Parkinson's puts a tremendous financial burden on people and their families, you make the point that the economic burden is affecting all of us. That's right. And uh, it turns out that if you look at those growth curves that have been replicated and the World Health Organization is interested in this, um, many researchers have done work on this and it's been replicated many times. If you look at the growth of Parkinson's, it has the potential to really, really strike hard at the healthcare systems, not just in the United States, but all over the world. The economic devastation alone of those growing numbers, the doubling that Ray Dorsey talks about from 1990 to 2015, the doubling again to 2040, this is going to knock us flat if we don't get a hold of this and, and begin to turn it around. It's gonna be billions and billions of dollars in healthcare expenditures. And I'm not sure Medicare and some of these other health systems can, uh, can, can take it. I mean, what would you say, Ray? So there's a recent study that uh, found that the economic burden of Parkinson's disease in the United States is $50 billion uh, alone, mm. amounting to $50,000 per uh, every 1 million for each individual who has Parkinson's disease. Half of that is in a healthcare cost, vast majority of which is going to Medicare. So if we want to save Medicare, if we want to reduce healthcare expenditures, if we want to improve the lives of people, uh, older Americans and younger Americans, we should work to prevent this disease. Although there are some countries that are you know, doing all sorts of things that the United States has resisted doing, um, it's just, do you think that uh, we will see some changes now that uh, there's a, a new president in the White House? Yeah, so uh, we'll, we'll highlight one uh, pesticide is called Paraquat. Uh, it's widely considered the most toxic herbicide ever created. It kills the weeds that Roundup doesn't and it increases the risk of uh, Parkinson's by 150%. 32 countries, including China, have banned uh, this pesticide. Syria has banned it. The United Arab Emirates has banned it. The Netherlands? Um, uh, the Netherlands have banned it. But uh, United States, in October of last year, reauthorized its use. We need to stop it. We need to ban Paraquat uh, so that we prevent people from ever getting the disease. And it's not just farmers who work with it. It's people who drink uh, contaminated well water, which I think you've had hosts on, guests on in the past have just that have mm. discussed this, and it's uh, likely uh, from uh, effects of different residues of pesticides on the food that we consume. We'll go into more detail on the uh, the various causes, but, um, and I'm, I throw this out, 
pretty much every other question now to both of you. What's the most common way for doctors to diagnose Parkinson's disease? Uh, because it, it's something that it takes a, a while to develop, doesn't it? Well, you know, it's an interesting question, and you might, uh, and your listeners might assume that Dr. Dorsey and I are going to wow you with some sort of, you know, new blood tests or new imaging tests, but the single best way to diagnose Parkinson remains a good neurological examination. And, you know, we can even do this through telemedicine these days with the technology that we have, but seeing someone is really important, you know, for this. And we now appreciate that Parkinson isn't just motor symptoms. So, you know, if you go to the dentist, they will look at your teeth. If you go to the neurologist, they'll look at your movements, right? But it turns out that there are lots of features in Parkinson that may present before tremors and, and one in five people don't even have a tremor with Parkinson. And so it's really important that we ask about depression and anxiety and sleep. And we now know that people that act out their dreams, so-called REM, sleep behavior disorder, REM is dream sleep for everybody who's listening. If you are active during dream sleep and fighting the bad guys or chasing the bad guys, that <laughs> might be a sign that you have uh -oh. uh, Parkinson and loss of smell and, um, and severe constipation. These could be early signs of Parkinson prodromal. We call them prodromal signs that may occur or symptoms that may occur before you actually see the motor symptoms. And so, so so do people, are people less likely to go to a neurologist when some of these things present themselves? You know, that is one of the big challenges now in the field is that people are, you know, not sure what to do, right? You know, I mean, not sure that anything's wrong. And, um, and you know, it turns out that worldwide there's a shortage of neurologists and worldwide, there's also a drastic and a critical shortage of, of people like Ray and I that are trained in Parkinson. Only 40 or so of us are trained a year, period. I mean, it's amazing. And there's data that Dr. Dorsey can tell you about that, um, that shows if you do see a neurologist, your chances of, uh, of nursing home placement, of uh, having morbidity or mortality are, are way less. Some of the data that came from University of Pennsylvania by a, a talented researcher named Allison Willis there. And so seeing an expert, I think is important. Ray, what are your thoughts? Yeah, but wait, wait, I just want to ask you because Parkinson's is a progressive disease. So can't the first five to 10 years following diagnosis remain relatively normal? It can, we, uh, you know, Parkinson isn't one disease. And so there are many different forms of Parkinson and, and uh, we're now studying uh, folks in the largest, you know, real life study that's ever been conducted with the Parkinson's foundation, the Parkinson outcome project. And some folks will live 20, 30, 40 years. So the progression can be different. So it's hard to look left and right, um, but you can see cases that have very, very slow progression. But by the time you get to a few years in, usually folks are on medication, at least once those motor symptoms, the stiffness, slowness, 
problems with walking show up. You were going to ask uh, Dr. Dorsey something, uh, that, and I interrupted you. Um, yeah, I was going to ask him uh, to just comment because he's, he's such an expert in the field on the importance of seeing a neurologist and, and, um, and, and how important that is to the, to the diagnosis and what we know about health outcomes, which is his area when people do get the proper care. So Leonard, at the same time, we have this fastest growing brain disease in the world. We know that 40% of people with the disease don't see a neurologist within four years of diagnosis, as you were suggesting. And those individuals who don't see a neurologist soon after diagnosis are more likely to fracture their hip, more likely to be placed in a skilled, in a skilled nursing facility, and more likely to die prematurely. Uh, one silver lining out of the COVID pandemic has been Medicare's temporary expansion of telemedicine. We need to make that uh, expansion permanent so anyone, anywhere can continue to receive the care that they need. Now, uh, what about dopamine? Uh, it's a chemical that's released by nerve cells in the brain. Why are dopamine levels significantly lower in the brains of people with Parkinson's? Michael? Well, so um, it turns out that a lot of people believe that Parkinson is just a disease of dopamine. And let me just back up and say for, for people that are listening on today, when we say dopamine, dopamine is just a brain chemical. So it's, it's just a liquid that is in different circuits. So imagine there are different circuits or different pathways. Like if you walk on different paths to get different places, it would be the same in your brain. There are different pathways that go different areas and some use dopamine and some use other um, types of chemicals like serotonin or acetylcholine. And these are all just big words that, that neurologists and neuroscientists use to describe these things. But it turns out that Parkinson is not just as a disease of dopamine. It's a disease uh, that's a degeneration or a breakdown of multiple of these paths. So imagine you had you know, three or four or five paths around your house that you like to walk on, and maybe one was dopamine and one was a different chemical called serotonin and one was a different chemical called acetylcholine, you know, over time, the weather starts to, it starts to wear these paths away. And then you could get a disease like Parkinson that starts to, um, starts to affect it. And so it turns out that dopamine levels are one of the things that are most noticeable to people with Parkinson, because we learned in the late 1960s, and many people have seen the movie Awakenings with Robin Williams, we learned that if you give the chemical dopamine to people with Parkinson, that they have this miraculous waking up. And we don't see this in any other disease, not in hypertension or high blood pressure, not in diabetes. It's still an astounding effect. But low dopamine is one of the, one of the features of Parkinson, but not the only feature. And dopamine, when we replace it, helps things like tremor, stiffness, and slowness. And over time, as those pathways change, you can also get some uh, difficulties with the medicine, like maybe it starts wearing off before the next dose, or maybe you get some extra dance-like um, features called dyskinesia. And so we, um, we often talk about dopamine with Parkinson. It's confusing for uh, folks that have it and family members. And probably the most confusing thing is we don't actually measure dopamine levels. It's very hard to measure dopamine levels and it wouldn't necessarily be useful because they fluctuate so much. And so 
it does create some confusion and hopefully that uh, that will help your listeners a bit. My guests on today's Leonard Lopate at Large are Drs. Michael S. Okun and uh, Ray Dorsey, two of the four uh, doctors responsible for a new book called Ending Parkinson's Disease, A Prescription for Action. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. You said that it was very rather rare when Dr. James Parkinson first observed in London in 1817, but how common was it 50 years ago or so? Uh, uh, is uh, Is it because we've increased the use of the things that you mentioned earlier, the environmental factors and including air pollution, heavy metals, certain pesticides, industrial chemicals, are they the, the main culprits? We think so. And so 25 years ago, Parkinson's disease was half as common as it is today. And 50 years ago is probably half that. And, you know, just from your own experience, Leonard, I'm sure you have friends and colleagues who have Parkinson's disease and you find it increasingly common just in your circles. And we do think it is these environmental factors uh, that are tied to the Industrial Revolution, including certain pesticides like paraquat, industrial chemicals like trichloroethylene, and air TCE. Um, yes, TCE. I'm going to say TCE instead of trichloro, yes, yes. whatever. <laughs> yes. TCE. And it's not just the people who work with them, although those individuals are at much higher risk, 150 to 500% increased risk for people who've worked directly with these chemicals. But TCE contaminates up to 30% of the water supply, uh, 30% of groundwater in the United States. Numerous uh, people in New York State, for example, have drunk uh, contaminated water from TCE. Some of these pesticides that are linked to Parkinson's disease are responsible for uh, 25 million kids in New York City losing 17 million IQ Mm. points. These pesticides are found on golf courses that many of your listeners probably play on. There was even a study that suggested there was a cluster of people uh, who live near a golf course who developed Parkinson's disease. And those individuals who live downwind of the golf course appear to be at higher risk of developing the disease and those people who lived upwind. So they're, how is they're it, all around us. And how is it discovered to be a cause of, of Parkinson's? So um, it's just like, you know, how do we determine that smoking causes lung cancer? Um, you do a lot of epidemiological studies and you find really strong uh, uh, risks associated with it. Um, you do repeated studies from repeated from scientists from all over the country and all over the world who repeat it. And then in many cases, you feed these pesticides or the chemical TCE to laboratory mice and rats. And sure enough, they developed the behavioral features of Parkinson's disease, including shaking of their paws. And when you look at their brains, you can see the pathology of Parkinson's disease uh, there. So we know from a large amount of uh, evidence that these uh, environmental factors are likely contributing to the rise of Parkinson's disease. Didn't the EPA propose banning TCE? What happened? Yes, it uh, did. And it hasn't, um, despite, you know, repeated assurances that it was likely going to. And uh, today we're launching a campaign about we give a dime about Parkinson's, just like people made their voices uh, heard by mailing dimes into the White House to address polio in 1938. We're asking people to mail in uh, letters to the White House, asking us asking the uh, White House to ban uh TCE and other pesticides that are linked uh, to Parkinson's. And they can do that by just going to our website, endingpd.org. Now, lobbying by the chemical industry in 2017 got the EPA to postpone the ban indefinitely. I'm assuming that uh, the, the 
it's a different atmosphere at the EPA now, but only so many things can be done in the, in the first months of a new administration. Uh, you mentioned Paraquat. Uh, I throw this out to both of you. The, uh, the pesticide that's used in farming uh, to kill stubborn uh, weeds that's been banned in, in 30 countries. Um, why hasn't it been banned in the United States? The same reason that TCE hasn't been banned? I think we have in the Parkinson's community is very nice and been too silent. Um, in New York City in the 1980s, we had a, a new virus that entered uh, that was uniformly uh, fatal and there was no federal response. And, and into that vacuum, HIV activists in New York City adopted the motto of silence equals death and led by Larry Kramer and others, uh, ACT UP changed the course of uh, HIV in the span of 15 years. And not only have they made that uh, among the most treatable conditions uh, that we have associated with a near normal life expectancy, they prevented thousands, if not millions of us, including many of your listeners from ever developing HIV in the first place. We can't rely on the EPA. We can't rely on a new administration. The 1.2 million Americans who have Parkinson's disease need to end their silence so we can end the suffering, preventable and often needless suffering that's occurring with this disease. You mentioned a petition signed by over 100,000 members of the Parkinson's community and the e EPA just ignored it? Um, you'd have to ask the EPA that. <laughs> okay. Um, you, you, we, we were talking a bit about Paraquat, the pesticide that's used in farming that's been banned in many countries. Um, hasn't it led to a sharp rise in cases among farmers? Um, yes. Uh, so Paraquat increases the risk of Parkinson's by 150%. And just to give you a little context, you know, when you hear about something increasing the risk of cancer in the news, that's usually like 10 or 20%. We're talking about 150% increased risk uh, associated with uh, Paraquat. And when it's fed to laboratory mice, as it was 20 years ago by my colleagues across the street from where I am in the University of Rochester, New York, it reproduced the features of uh, Parkinson's uh, disease. We've known about its toxic effects for a long time. The pesticide's been around for 70 years. It's time for us to say to chemists, we can come up with uh, safer alternatives, just like we had. We don't drive cars from the 1950s or fly airplanes from the 1950s because we have safer alternatives. We can and uh, should use safer alternatives uh, to pest, uh, to Paraquat. Haven't military personnel and veterans been at particular risk? Yeah, so I'll start and then I'll let uh, Michael uh, join in. So. Uh, Veterans account for 10% of Americans with Parkinson's disease. So while veterans only make up about 6% of the US population, uh, they account for 10% of people with the disease. And it's because they were exposed to uh, pesticides, including DDT and Agent uh, Orange, which have been linked to Parkinson's disease. It's because they've been exposed to the industrial chemical TCE, which is widely used in decreasing. Marines uh, are meeting with congressional leaders in Kentucky tomorrow who uh, developed Parkinson's disease because they worked on Camp Lejeune where 1 million Marines and their families were exposed to TCE in the drinking water. And because veterans, uh, 8 million veterans have uh, been exposed to head trauma, which also increases the risk of a Parkinson's disease. So veterans uh, who signed up to serve our country have bared an undue and unjust uh, burden of the disease. Yeah, and I'll just add to um, to what uh, Ray was saying. It, it's so important that that people understand this. And when Agent Orange was sprayed in Vietnam, it wasn't called Agent Orange because it 
turned you into a pumpkin or something like that. It's because it, it came in these orange barrels and what was contained in those orange barrels, you know, although it killed the plants. And remember when you talk about pesticides and Parkinson or any other disease, side in Latin C-I-D-E means killer. So whatever you're killing, you put in front of it, pesticide, herbicide, fungicide, etc. And, you know, when we expose our veterans to this, you know, it increases the later risk of them getting Parkinson. And many people didn't really believe this. And in fact, when the veteran secretary at the time, Shinseki, gave um, benefits to people with exposures to Agent Orange, the data was still kind of coming in and pointing in that direction. But today, we're very sure that this is a relationship. And and it's, it's a very good example because it can show people that you can be exposed to these pesticides, to Paraquat, to Agent Orange and others. And then later on down the road, you can have an increased risk of a disease like Parkinson. And so we really need to not only think about the people who have Parkinson now that we have to take care of, but you know, could there be prevention here? And so these decisions do matter and we need to make sure that we're educating our lawmakers and educating the public and making sure that our voices are heard just as loud as you mentioned some of the lobbyists and and uh, and folks who are against uh, deregulation. And we don't have a stand on deregulation in general, so I don't want to chase people away. All we're saying is if we know a chemical is associated with the later onset of a degenerative disease like Parkinson. Let's all agree to get rid of it. And Yeah, but and, it, yeah. we just recently did a show on Agent Orange. And although it's banned for use by the military, it's still been used in uh, Oregon and other states as a defoliant. And uh, Americans have been suffering all along. So uh, we have very mixed messages here, don't we? Absolutely. And, and, you know, we need to get on the same page and, and, um, you know, and I think it's, it's reasonable for industries and other folks to say, well, you don't really know for sure. But now we have study after study showing replication. So that's what you want in science. So as a scientist, if I see it once, ah, maybe it's true. If I see somebody else replicated in a different lab, hmm, that catch my attention. But if I start seeing it replicated all over the world, we got to pay attention to those things. And I, I really think that they're bipartisan and everybody, these are issues that people can come together and, and, and agree about. And, and healthcare, by the way, is a bipartisan issue in Congress, always has been. So people talk about how divided we are, but we often come together over issues of health, over the National Institute's of health funding and and other causes. And so um, so I think there's a tremendous opportunity here. Well, another, th another, yes, go ahead. I was gonna amplify, I think today's New York Times front page, it has an article on the effects of Agent Orange, not just on veterans, US veterans, but on the people of Laos and Vietnam. Yes, and, and the there's a lawsuit in, Fran in Paris right now over that. Exactly. And, there, and it's not just limited to Parkinson's disease. These pesticides, these chemicals are associated with cancer and a wide range of other health risks. You know, they're associated with intellectual disabilities, with autism and a wide range of conditions. So our banning, our looking for safer alternatives 
not only will it decrease and prevent people from ever developing Parkinson's disease, but prevent people from developing cancer and a wide range of other conditions. And then there's the insecticide, uh, forgive me if I mispronounce it, chlorpyrifos. Uh, can't exposure to it during pregnancy be harmful to brain development in, in the fetus? Uh, and wasn't it banned in the United States in 2001, but still being used on on golf courses and a wide range of things, and including foods, almonds, grapes, oranges, and cotton? Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, chlorpyrifos is the one that I alluded to that cost uh, 25 million children uh, in New York mm. City about uh, 17 million IQ points. So just oh think about God. that. We're using a pesticide that's intentionally decreasing the ability, intellectual ability of our children. It's, it's almost like brave new world. Uh, some might even say it is that brave new world, you know, Aldous Huxley's book from 1920s. Mm -hmm. And we're spraying it on utility poles and we spray it on golf courses. Um, I think we can find safer alternatives uh, to these chemicals. We don't use uh, cars and airplanes from the 1950s. We shouldn't be using chemicals from the 1950s that aren't safe to use. Hasn't Silicon Valley been declared a Superfund site? Uh, what is the reason there? Why is it a high risk area? Yeah, so uh, TCE, in addition to being a great degreaser, uh, also was widely used to clean off silicon wafers and electrical circuits. And so Superfund sites are these uh, EPA designated uh, toxic sites. And there are 21 uh, or half of those sites throughout the country are contaminated with this chemical called TCE. 21 sites uh, alone are in Silicon Valley. 15 are found within a seven mile stretch of the 101 freeway in Mountain View, California. Today, one of the headquarters of Google sits on a previous Superfund site that was contaminated with TCE by the founders of Silicon Valley, Fairchild Semiconductor and Intel Corporation. And people who live right near that Superfund site have found that this TCE, which gets into the groundwater and the soil, and then evaporates into their homes and their workplaces and their schools have found elevated levels of TCE in their homes and have had to put in remediation systems to remove that TCE from the air that they're breathing. You're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Bet you didn't know they've written songs about Parkinson's disease. That, that's one of them. Uh, but before we get back to my conversation with uh, Drs. Michael Oaken and, and Ray Dorsey, I need to take a moment to ask you to support this show and the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And the way to do that is to call 516-620-3602 or go online to give to WBAI.org right now. Uh, becoming a sustaining member of this station, what we call a BAI buddy, is a great way to support us without having to lay out a lot of money at any one time. And I'm excited to announce that we have a special offer for anyone who becomes a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large during today's show. If you call 516-620-3602 or go online to give to WBAI.org right now and sign up to become a sustaining member, 
we'd be happy to send you a free copy of this very valuable book, uh, this enlightening book that we've been discussing, Ending Parkinson's Disease, A Prescription for Action, by my guests, Dr. Michael Oaken and Ray Dorsey. All you need to do is call right now, 516-620-3602, or go to give to wbaiorg on your computer or smartphone, Sign up at the tax-deductible monthly amount of $10, $15, $20, whatever you're comfortable with taken, to be taken out of your credit card, your debit card, or whatever is easiest for you. And that's it. We will take care of the rest. You don't even have to give the, uh, the person at the W... Uh, tell the, the person at the uh, uh, WBAI call center about wanting the book or, or check any additional boxes online. Just sign up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, and my staff, my staff will make sure that you get the book. But please allow up to three weeks for delivery. However you contribute, the important thing is that you do your part by stepping up and supporting the show and this legendary radio station, the only station on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored. We, we don't take corporate underwriting or funding grants of any kind. We don't run ads. We rely totally on the support of our listeners. So we can't do it without you. One last time, the number to call, 516-620-3602. Go online to give to WBAI.org. Please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. And from all of us to uh, everyone who has contributed so far and is helping to keep us on the air, we thank you very much. Uh, and let's go back now to my guests, Drs. Ray Dorsey and Michael S. Oaken, who, along with Drs. Ted Scherer and Bastian Arblom, have written Ending Parkinson's Disease, a Prescription for Action, published by Public Affairs Books. Welcome back. Well, let's talk about the treatments that we have so far. Uh, isn't levodopa the current treatment regimen for Parkinson's? Um, it, it's a it's a very old treatment, isn't it? Fifty years old. Yeah. So levodopa or dopamine replacement pills have been around for now fifty years, and we would write prescriptions when I started my career and when Ray started his career on regular prescription pads. Of course, everything's computerized now. And that was the best treatment, just like you would see in the movie Awakenings. And I'm a little bit sad, or maybe a little bit more than sad, to say that the best treatment we have for Parkinson, not the only treatment, and we're very good at treating Parkinson's. I don't want to send the wrong message here, but we're still stuck with dopamine replacement. And, um, and so we, we do need to develop better therapies. But the pe people like Michael J. Fox that quite obviously have Parkinson's, aren't they being treated with this? Why are they, why are their tremors so traumatic? Right. So, um, so th there are many different forms of Parkinson. And when you look at celebrities like Michael J. Fox or Janet Reno or Muhammad Ali, they're all treated with dopamine replacement therapies. And as the disease um, progresses over time, so as it progresses, it changes. And so those pathways that are in the brain begin to degenerate. And so you don't get as smooth of a response to the medications because as the disease progresses, you have less dopamine terminals, you have less connections to other brain areas. And so maybe you take a dose of medicine, it doesn't last until 
you need your next dose. And as the Parkinson progresses, some people will need to be taking medicines every hour or two. Ooh. And if the medicine levels get high because you're not able to buffer, you might get these extra movements. And when they're too low, you might get stiff and slow and shuffle. And so we play this game in the clinic. So Dr. Dorsey and I try to see people frequently, listen to them. I know that sounds crazy to your radio listeners, but the doctors really need to listen to you when you have Parkinson because it makes a huge difference if we understand the timing and the dosages and what the symptoms are, because we can really make adjustments every few months to help people. So one of the pleas I would make for people is if you're not doing well, make sure you're seeing your Parkinson doc or your neurologist, if you can get one to, uh, to make frequent changes and to listen to you and make sure they're listening to all of the little symptoms because it makes such a difference. What about surgical interventions? Yeah, so this is um, where a lot of the research that I've been doing the last two decades has been endeavored on, you know, trying to understand one of the things when I was a younger man, I was very interested in understanding how different regions of the brain talk to each other. And there's a conversation that goes on between different brain regions. And we, uh, we really wanted to develop therapies to change that conversation. So my lab has worked on things like ticks and tremors and walking. And, and so we're trying to understand how different islands in the brain are talking to each other. And, and it's different than like the gallbladder and nothing against people who work on the gallbladder or the gallbladder. There's nothing wrong with the gallbladder, but the brain is really interesting in that it's a group of islands with all of these connections because they have connections and circuits, we can put electricity into the brain through things called neuromodulation, or some people call them deep brain stimulators. And we can listen to the cells, we can eavesdrop on them, and try to change those conversations. And what's really cool and really rewarding for us in our own careers here at the University of Florida has been that opportunity to do that and actually change symptoms and improve people's lives. And so, so that, those are um, some of the things that we think about when we're talking about putting a straw in the brain and stimulating. And you can also, by the way, um, make lesions or holes in the brain in certain places. And that also can change the way the regions talk to each other. So it's a fascinating area. And I always want people to know that there are, you know, over a dozen different surgical, medical, you know, exercise and, and, and therapy related things that you can do for Parkinson. And so, so you should always be on the lookout to make sure that yeah. you're, you're changing over time and getting the right therapies. Because there are new drugs, right? Two new classes of drugs that have come to market to help to treat symptoms. Uh, forgive me if I mispronounce them. Uh, Pima Vanserin for hallucinations and droxidopa for lightheadedness associated with with Parkinson's. There are also uh, something in the pipeline, uh, LRRK2 inhibitors, and uh, there's work on immunotherapy treatments for Parkinson's, similar to what's being used for COVID-19. Um, are, are, are all of these things promising? So um, this is what we call the pipeline. 
and um, and you know we think about you know different areas, different categories that we can attack the disease. And so some of the things that you mentioned first um, would be drugs that might help if you're seeing things that aren't there. So they may end up going at those things. There are others that might attack uh, things like inflammation and changing your diet. And there's a whole bunch of nutrition therapies and things going in that direction. You can attack the drug receptors in the brain and try to stimulate them in, in various different ways. And similarly for surgery, what we need to do right now is we're only putting about $200 million into the pipeline a year through the largest funder of research in the world, which is the National Institutes of Health. And what we need to do is we need to increase that number by more than 10 times. And in the book, a lot more money put into treatment for HIV AIDS than for, for Parkinson's. And in the book, we wrote about the story of HIV going to $3 billion, a similar story to Parkinson, except for they sped up. And so we wrote a, a, an op-ed for the Daily Beast a few weeks ago, uh, talking about what if we sped up, what if we had an operation warp speed for Parkinson disease? And, you know, this idea that 200 million sounds, you know, if you had $200 million, you would be rich, right? Sounds really good, but it's, it's nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. To move that needle in HIV, it took $3 billion with a B dollars a year. And so we have to double down on our investment and more than double down, increase our investment by more than 10 times in order to increase that pipeline. So am I excited about the pipeline? You bet. Um, am I disappointed that that pipeline's not moving and things aren't moving through it fast enough? You bet. Are there what about the what about the drugs for Parkinson's? Yeah. What what about the drugs for Parkinson's we see advertised on television? Yeah. So I I mean I, I think that that's you know I think it's a good sign that we see you know new drugs and new therapies coming out to try to address symptoms for people. So I, I mean I think that you know, that's, that's a good thing. You know, I mean, that's a sign that we're seeing progress, um, but, um, but it's not enough. Dr. Dorsey, aren't, don't you use telemedicine in your treatment of Parkinson's patients? Yes. How does that so work? You, uh, yes. Uh, so if you think about it, it's a little bit odd that we ask sick patients, especially those with Parkinson's disease or other degenerative conditions to come see generally healthy clinicians on our terms. Instead, we should see patients on their terms. And we've been using telemedicine, just simple video-based conferencing like Zoom uh, to care for patients with Parkinson's in nursing homes, clinics, and in their homes since uh, 2007. And it works just like, uh, some, just like you know, a grandparent might have a Zoom chat with their granddaughter. Uh, um, we ask a history, we do an examination, we have them hold out their hands and we look for tremor. We have them tap their thumb and index finger to look for slow movements. We have them stand up and walk and observe their uh, gait. Um, so the visits are very similar to what you would be done in person. But the nice thing is that we bring the care to people with Parkinson's disease instead of expecting people with Parkinson's disease and their families to come see us. My guests on today's Leonard Lopate at Large are Drs. Ray Dorsey and Michael S. Okun, who are co-authors along with Drs. Ted Shearer and Bastian Arblom, of a new book called Ending Parkinson's Disease, A Prescription for Action, which is uh, published by uh, 
the who's publishing it again? <laughs> I said public affairs. And public affairs. And I gather that the uh, that the uh, proceeds from the sale of the book will go uh, into funds for fighting Parkinson's. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI and WBAI.org. We are streaming uh, on on the internet. Um, in in the book, uh, you as a team have made a pact, which is an acronym for prevent the disease, advocate for policies, care for patients, and treat the condition with innovative therapies. Um, wh what do you hope to achieve with this pact? Is this just a publicity thing? Um, no, it's not a publicity thing. It's a plan. So, uh, you know, we're doctors. And so we came up with a prescription for action that outlines 25 concrete steps that we can take to prevent and end uh, Parkinson's disease. And Michael Oaken's really creative. So he came up with this acronym of PACT, which groups these recommendations into 10 aimed at preventing Parkinson's disease, including banning paraquat, banning the chemical chlorpyrifos, I mean, banning chlorpyrifos found on golf courses and banning the chemical TCE. It includes advocating for additional resources, including uh, funding for NIH uh, to increase for Parkinson's uh, disease. Uh, it, Third, asked that we care for everyone affected by making Medicare's coverage of telemedicine permanent. And fourth, we treat the disease with novel therapies. As Dr. Oaken was alluding to, it's a little concerning that we've had more therapeutic breakthroughs for Parkinson's disease, levodopa and deep brain stimulation last century than we've had this century. We need an operation warp speed as Dr. Oaken has identified uh, to drive uh, the development of new treatments for the people who have the disease already. Dr. Oaken, in your 2013 book, Parkinson's Treatment, 10 Secrets to a Happier Life, you recommended optimizing the timing of therapeutic decisions and suggested getting psychiatric comorbidities treated, more, more comorbidities treated. Um, do uh, patients often have to deal with more than one issue? Absolutely. And you know, it's been said, um, I said it at the White House once, more people have, have said that, um, that Parkinson is the most complex disease in medicine. When you consider it has over 20 of these motor features like tremor, stiffness, slowness, but also these non-motor features like depression, anxiety, hallucinations. And then it has this dramatic effect and changing effect with medicines and and stimulation and all of these therapies. And so it's incredibly complicated. And back in 2013, when we wrote about this, um, we had these things that we were seeing in practice that seemed like every day, you know, of course you would do these things. And we called it 10 secrets to a happier life. And we realized, you know, humbling, you know, each day I practice medicine, I know a little less it's very humbling, but we realized a lot of people didn't know, you know, like these 10 things and, and uh, it sort of became a runaway bestseller, not because we're geniuses, but it's because people, it's such a know, need. Tell people. it's a need. Yeah. You yeah. got to tell people. You, you advise patients to learn to deal with hospitalization. How frequently do Parkinson's patients have to deal with hospitalization? So we studied this, uh, we used data from the largest uh, living um, prospective Parkinson study ever conducted with the Parkinson Foundation. We used that data and published about a dozen different papers on hospitalization and your chances each year of going to the hospital double, like they can increase by 50% of hospitalization either to the emergency room 
or um, admitted to the hospital. And so it's a very high likelihood if you have Parkinson that you'll be in the hospital. And the hospital is no place for people with Parkinson because you won't get your medications on time every time. They may give you the wrong medicines and they may make you worse. And so we developed these hospitalization kits that are free through the Parkinson's Foundation. You can dial 1-800, the number four, and PD info are the letters on your numbers of your telephone, 1-800-4PD-INFO. And you can get these free kits that we made um, based on all of that research to help to keep you safe. So when you go in the hospital and people don't know what to do, you rip off a, a page from the kit and you hand it to them. You say Parkinson Foundation, based on research, says do this. And we realize this can save people a lot and can, in some cases, be life-saving. And they can also go to your website, ending OD, PD, all one word, endingpd.org. That's right. And you can go to endingpd.org. You can download the red letters. Today, we kicked off our red letter campaign, 10,000 letters to the White House, ban paraquat, make sure that we keep the gains with telemedicine so those don't go away. Those may very well go away if we don't fight for that. People with Parkinson need that. And we need to increase funding by 10 times. So you can go to endingpd.org, get the information, download uh, your red letter, send it in, join the campaign. If you buy the book, guess what? All the proceeds go to charity. And uh, we need your voices. We need people to get charismatic. We want people to get angry. We want people to join forces to make sure that uh, we are meeting the, the challenge of Parkinson's. Now we're pretty much out of time, but uh, Dr. Dorsey, uh, just one more thing. You've added an addendum to the book about trying to apply the lessons we've learned from fighting the COVID-19 pandemic. And you look at how scientific and financial resources have been uh, so effectively utilized. So how can they be applied here? Well, as uh, Dr. Oak is alluding to, uh, financial investments in health pay off uh, handsomely. Uh, they're paying off handsomely for COVID-19. You know, the economic benefit to the COVID vaccine is going to be measured not in millions or billions, but in trillions of dollars and millions of lives. Similarly, the investments made in HIV have, uh, uh, have stemmed the tide of HIV in many parts of the world and prevented millions of us from ever developing the disease and brought needed treatments to those already infected. We need the same thing to occur for, uh, for Parkinson's disease. $200 million is not gonna do it. If we increase our funding tenfold, if we make our voice, if we make our 1.2 million voices heard with Parkinson's disease, we'll bring about the end of this disease, just like we've done for polio, just like we're doing it for HIV and just like we're doing it for COVID. And April, the next month is Parkinson's Disease Awareness Month. And our goal is to get 100,000 people to sign up at endingpd.org to mail in a card to the White House. A, instead of a march of dimes, it's a march of red letters in a we give a dime campaign about Parkinson's disease. So if your listeners have Parkinson's disease or don't want to have Parkinson's disease or have a friend or family member affected by the disease, please go to endingpd.org. We'll mail you a postcard today that you can mail into the White House to make your voices heard. My great thanks to both of you for being on our show today, Drs. Ray Dorsey and Michael S. Oaken, who, along with Drs. Ted Scherer and Bastian Arblom, have written Ending Parkinson's Disease, A Prescription for Action. It's published by Public Affairs Books. It's been eye-opening. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Leonard. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Kate Guan Allison 
for preparing today's interview. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast in iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere else that podcasts are available. And you can find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I want to ask you one last time for your support. We need your help to to keep London located at large and all of the great programs on WBAI going during these very challenging times. So please step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602. And as I mentioned at the half, uh, if you become a sustaining member, a really great way to support the station because um, it allows us to plan for the future. We we know that your $10 or $15 or $20 a month contribution uh, will be coming in month after month until, by the way, you decide that you want to uh, stop doing it. You have the option of stopping it at any time. But if you do become a BAI buddy, during today's show by making a monthly contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, we would be delighted to send you a copy of the book we've been discussing, Ending Parkinson's Disease, A Prescription for Action by my guests, Drs. Michael Oaken and Ray Dorsey. It's, it's our way of saying thank you for your support. But please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. Uh, and, and thanks. Remember that WBAI is totally supported by our listeners, 100% listener sponsored. We don't take corporate underwriting or funding grants of any kind. We don't run ads, uh, which uh, some stations call funding credits. We rely totally on the support of our listeners. Uh, people, So we can't do this without you. One more time, the number is 516-620-3602 or go online to give to WBAI.org. We are off tomorrow, but we hope that you will join us on Thursday when my guest will be astronomer Giles Sparrow, who will be discussing his latest book called A History of the Universe in 21 Stars. You won't want to miss it. So, Tune in on Thursday. And thanks to all of you who have supported us.